Welcome to my new podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues with an emphasis on reproductive health and well-being, answering questions you may have about your health and debunking some of the many myths about our health. And today, it's an absolute pleasure to be introducing Liz Aroyden and Under the Knife, Life Lessons from the Operating Theatre. Liz is an international speaker, broadcaster and award-winning co-author of The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, How to Feel Empowered and Take Control. In 2015, aged just 40, she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer whilst working as a consultant breast surgeon. A recurrence in 2018 forced her to retire as a surgeon and her memoir, Under the Knife, is released on July the 6th this year. And it's been a great pleasure of mine that I've read that. So we're going to be talking about that book today. During chemotherapy, Liz started an award-winning blog about her experiences and now talks all over the world about how to improve patient care. In 2020, she launched her podcast, Don't Ignore the Elephant, which we'll also talk about. During the podcast, she talks about the things no one else does, like sex, death and body image. Liz is passionate about promoting the benefits of exercise for cancer patients. Hello, Liz. Hi, Joyce. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I know we we have been talking for so long on social media and various other ways, and it's an absolute pleasure. And we are going to meet in person. I know. Can't wait. Can't wait. It's going to be very, very emotional. (laughs) So, Liz, let's start with your latest book, Under Mm -hmm. the Knife. It, it's a book that is raw and honest and brutal and funny. I, I laughed out loud several times. You talk about your mistakes and your triumphs of when you were training as a doctor. Yeah. And you, you explain what it's like to be a doctor and to do a procedure for the first time. I really felt I was in there with you and also how your dad inspired you. So tell us why you decided to write Under the Knife. I've I've loved writing. I actually I hated writing at school. I hated creative writing because I couldn't think of stories. I'm like a copier. I can't no imagination. But I got into writing and blogging and I realized I really enjoy explaining things to people. And there was something that I wanted to get off my chest. I'd spoken about cancer and my sex life in the mail on Sunday, but I'd never spoken about my mental health. As a doctor, I was terrified patients would find out that I'd had extreme depression. They might think I was a crazy woman. They wouldn't want to see me. But now I'd retired. I thought, I want to talk about this so other doctors and nurses know they're not alone and we can help get rid of that stigma around mental health. And I started writing during lockdown and I went on an Arvin course, a virtual course with a group of people I still talk to today who were all writing their memoirs. And it just started flowing. And I thought, I really think my story can help people because I've had quite a lot of shit happen in my life. (laughs) Bullying at school, harassment, working as a woman in a man's world, getting depression twice, getting cancer twice, and I'm still here and I'm still trying to be positive. And it was just that feeling of a bit of therapy. I need to write this down, but I really think I can help other people. And and you, you really have. I, I, I learned a lot from your book and those that are experiencing any sorts of cancer or depression, and we'll come back to those things, will really benefit from hearing your story. It's a really great memoir. And you talk very openly about how hard it is to train as a doctor. And I I work with many doctors, and I don't think even I'd appreciated how much their training has involved. So tell us more about your training, especially quite a few times you've mentioned about how hard it was to fit in with the lads in a a very male-dominated world. I think I wanted the general public to realise how long it takes to train to be a doctor and what being a doctor involves. I remember doing a study when I was a junior doctor asking people in outpatient clinics how long it took to train to become a consultant. And the average answer was five or six years. Now, we spend five years at medical school and with my PhD, it took 20 years from me from going to university to become a doctor. People don't realize the stresses you are under, the life decisions you are making with often very little support. And I wanted to get them into our world. So when they can maybe understand people are complaining about the doctor didn't do this, we are humans. And I I loved surgery. From the very first moment I went into an operating theater, I knew I had to wear pajamas. I wanted to know what was going on in the table. It was, it was like, it's amazing. We fix things. But surgery was and still is a man's world. 
I did not work for another female boss for 16 years. I was often the only woman in the department and I was naive. I had I wasn't dating. I was very naive, very awkward, very bashful. And I suddenly had to fit into this male world with the sexual innuendo and all the jokes. And this is before the days of iPhones, where you'd be with your boss in the coffee room. I don't know whether you can remember this. And the first day, what's your CV? What speciality do you want to do? Next day, do you like football, cricket, sport? No. What earth am I going to talk to you about for the next five hours between cases? And at the time, we got jobs based on who you knew. If your boss liked you, then they would put in a good word. It was all word of mouth. It wasn't really formal interviews. So you, 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 you absorbed a lot of harassment and bullying and didn't say anything because you needed the next job. And you just put up like it's normal. And I just wanted to try and get that word out that it's not right and there are things we should do about it. Um, but also share the highs. A lot of medicine is really, really funny. The stuff that we got up to, the stuff that you remember, it's, God, you wouldn't say it in a nightclub now, but um, <laughs> just just letting people into our world and understanding what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, it's we all see a doctor and I think it's really important and I think you've really clearly explained this of what they've been through to get there, to be sitting yeah. with you and explaining something it may be that you've got flu or something simple with your gp but they have done a lot of work to get there and, and they have yeah and it's and that's and, that and the emotion for me the emotional toll of telling someone they've got cancer i didn't get it until i was a consultant in charge of that person and suddenly oh my god that emotion is real or the first time that you see a dead body and can't cpr doesn't work and like you're 22 you don't get trained how to deal with it you just kind of absorb it all and it was just just that way of letting people into our world. Yeah. And, and you have threaded throughout your book a very honest account of your depression and also, mm. very honestly, your, some suicidal thoughts. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think my my depression started when I was about 18 or 19. I think it was actually premenstrual. I would get really, really down the day before my period came on, but it got worse and I'd have black days where I'd at medical school, I'd tell my friends I had a migraine lying through my teeth until the black clouds went. And you suddenly wake up thinking, oh, I feel all right today. I can get out of bed. But it was hard to do that at work. And it was almost you put on the mask. When I was happiest at work was when I was at my most mentally fragile because I have to pretend I'm fine so I can get through the day and then come home and screen call. And I'd been on antidepressants for quite a while, but the drugs I was on were actually making me manic. And I'd have days, especially post on call, extreme spending, being crazy, doing dangerous things, being really irresponsible, and then swinging back down into the lows. And I had to go and see a psychiatrist because a friend was worried about me and they thought I might have bipolar disorder. I was, it was, it was a combination of alcohol and the antidepressants. And it was really, really, really scary. And I weaned myself off the antidepressants I was on. But when I became a consultant, it's lonely as a consultant because you can't see people. Um, so, you know, it was lonely because I was tucked away in the, um, the towers of the gynecology block as a consultant. So I didn't see people. There's no one to talk to in the mess at lunchtime. And I was telling 10 women a day they had cancer. And that stress of feeling that emotion just really got to me. And I was thinking of what can I do to not go to work so I don't have to go through this again. And my husband had no idea that I was having suicidal thoughts. And it was really, really scary. Yeah, it's th thank you for sharing that. And, and I think when, when, you, when it started for you is when these things weren't really talked about. But today's no. society, it's, a, it's, a, it's on the table and people do talk about it a lot more. So it's really important. And I think especially off the back of COVID and the burnout that the doctors had doing awful hours seeing horrific things, we are... We are, I think we are hopefully better now at standing up and saying, I have mental health. I blame myself. I thought it was my fault. And that shame of being off sick with depression, you're told to go outside and enjoy yourself. But you think, what if someone sees me smiling? I meant to be off sick with depression. It's really hard. And it's that guilt of, you know, I've, I've got a husband, I've got a job, I don't want for anything. Why, why am I really, really sad when there are other people who are struggling? And that guilt of your colleagues having to cover for you and you think, no, I should just carry on. And it's it's having that awareness to say, I am a patient as well and I have to look after myself so I can look after my patients in the future. I, I see what you mean about going outside and smiling, but I, I have um, 
well, we both we're probably talk about this later, but we both cold water swim or wild swim. Yes. And and it's great for our mental health. But I've got friends who have been off work and um some people like I work flexibly, so we sometimes go for swims during the week. And they've said, But what if someone sees me? I'm exactly off sick. But but we said, yeah. but you're but you're going to swim because it's going to help your mental health. So it's a sort yeah. of, you know, but we have to do these things. And, you know, what you've said about um, the ups and downs of being a doctor, mm. I, on, on our master's courses, we have a lot of clinicians come and uh, speak to the students and, and lecture them on, on their speciality. And I always say to my students, we have to really consider what that clinician has dealt with that day. They're, they're coming to give you a lecture. And we really don't know what they did and what patient they had to speak to just before they came to give you a lecture. So we have to give them some slack because sometimes, Ooh. yeah, sometimes they might be, you know, not not yeah. as therapy as maybe the person before you, but the person before them. But they they weren't dealing with some life or death situation. So or they I, may have or, had a complaint come through or an angry relative on the phone. We judge people on that the minute we see them. It's a bit like the old, a difficult colleague is a colleague in difficulty. It's the cliche you trot out at interviews, but actually none of us really know what is going on with anybody. That- I've been equally at fault to, to blame someone. Oh God, they're being really annoying, but I haven't stopped to say, are you all right? Is there anything I can do to help? Yeah, the, the story I always give that one of our top consultants, one he always got wonderful responses, feedback from the students. And one year he didn't. And I said, look, I never asked him, but I'm pretty sure that year he'd had a really tough day and dealt yeah. with some really difficult patients. So, um, and, and that's just an example I give, you know, just bear with them. Um, but as, as you said in your book, doctors do not normally have the illness that they are trained to treat. I thought no. that was such a powerful statement. Um I think you thought as well, and I, I would have thought, I mean, I mine, mine can't compare to what you went through, but I worked in fertility treatment for years and was the, the scientist in the lab, and then I had fertility treatment. And I, mm. you know, I, I saw some threads that were very similar but between what we went through, but mine was not, I can't really compare it to what you went through. And and you would have thought that this would be an advantage that you can now emphasize with the patients, but... Uh, you said that this was a real issue and very triggering for you. So tell tell us more about how you felt about that and dealt with that. I think part of me thought I should be an expert because I've spent my life training to treat this disease, but I've never I've never had chemotherapy. I've never seen a radiotherapy suite. I've never had a Zolodex injection. I've never listened to patients, actually asked patients, how bad are the side effects and how do you cope? But I had a year, I had 18 months off and I went back to work before my local recurrence and it was suddenly... I didn't see another patient in the flesh during my treatment. And I'm suddenly with people who are going through the same thing as me. And we all want to share. I mean, we're terrible at butting in. Oh, but my was, and I, you want that commonality, but I'm the doctor. And I'm the one that has to potentially break bad news or tell them it's come back. And I want to say, yes, cancer is shit. And you're going to feel awful. I got told off. You've got to be positive. But I know what they're going through. And part of me wanted to give them a hug and say, yes, I can get you through this. And I know what this is like, but... They're just hearing they've got cancer. I have to back off. And seeing women my age come back with metastatic disease made me think, could this be me? I knew too much. And it, and it was hard for my team because they didn't want to be treading on eggshells. Everyone knew I'd got breast cancer. So could, could you see this patient? This might be a bit triggering for you. They have to be able to say, the next one's for you. You're just going to do your job. And I had to somehow find a way of dealing with it. And I only shared a little bit when I saw patients at the year follow-up. And if they were struggling with tamoxifen or struggling, I, I now know how it can impact your sex life, your, your, um, all those sides of you. So I'd say, how, is, how are things with your husband? How is sex? I know tamoxifen can be bad because I've been on it. This can help. And I felt at that year point that I could share that I've been there. But there's no ethics. There's no rules regarding this. You kind of trust your gut and you get it wrong. And some people don't want to know. And then they want to ask you a load of questions. It's like, no, I'm, I'm the doctor. And that's why I worked under my maiden name. But I tweeted under my married name, hoping that patients would know it was me. And now I just kind of use my married name the same. But it's really hard when you are ill and patients find out. And how much do you share? Yeah, it's it's a it's a real hard one. I've I've certainly been there with the fertility issues I had as well. Mm. Um and I I felt quite 
quite angry with myself when I read your book, both of your books. I'd always had this illusion over the last 10 years or so that breast cancer was one of the medical successes. We'd Mm -hmm. got this great high survival rate, many women surviving um, after their treatment. But as you said, I had never considered what they were going through, the chemo, the radiotherapy, um, everything that you that you mentioned and the, and the surgery and reading what you went through it, it did it did make me angry that I I wasn't more aware of this so c- can you share a little that's bit interesting more? yeah can yeah you- I can and actually Trish felt that my co-author um breast cancer is a good success story it really is um more and more women are surviving and even women with metastatic cancer, some of them are now surviving for 10, 12, 14 years, like Chris Alenga. We've made huge leaps and bounds. Surgery has changed. It's no longer mastectomy or lumpectomy. We are reconstructing breasts. We're saving breasts. It is brilliant. And most women do not need chemotherapy. Most women have surgery as a day case in and out on the same day with radiotherapy. And then they have the hormone blockers for life, which can be hard with the side effects. But for most women, the treatment is over in a month. And they'll go on to live for a long, long, long time. We know it can come back in a third of women, but that's generally in the first couple of years or 20, 30 years later. And there are more and more drugs being developed. I think it's a huge success story. But when you are one of the unfortunate few who have got more aggressive disease, who do need chemotherapy, um, who then need chemotherapy after your surgery again, that's when it's two or three years out of your life. And that's when it's really, really hard. And I think that's the same for a lot of cancers, you know, bowel cancer, brain cancer, the treatment itself can be hard, but because there's so much money put into research, I think it really is a success story. But I had no idea how hard chemo was. I just saw patients at the end and I struggled and I was 40 and fit. And I think most people assume that chemo is going to stop their cancer coming back. But actually we give it if there's a five to 6% benefit of it helping, which means 95 women will have chemo and won't see any benefit from it. And we don't know who it is to give it to. And it's it's really interesting to talk about statistics and decisions that you make with patients. And it must be the same in the fertility world. What are the chances of it working? Do you spend that time, that money, that energy? Is it worth it? It's so difficult. It's Even if it's 1%, are you the 1%? <laughs> you yeah. Know? No one knows. No one knows. And I now kind of think if my cancer comes, it's 50-50 whether my cancer comes back properly the third time. It happens or it doesn't. It's I can do everything I can to live as healthy as I can and it could still happen. And that's almost helped me think, right, it's out of my control. Yeah, it is It is out of our control. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the menopause. <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> here we go, here we go. Um, so let's, let's talk about you first. So your treatment obviously threw you into the menopause. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about what happened? I can. So I was 40 and I had chemotherapy. And I thought I'd wet the bed because I felt water trickling down my inner bum cheek and thigh. And I thought, oh, that's a night sweat. Oh, okay, this is fun. And I started getting hot flashes and I describe it like a reverse orgasm. And I remember sitting in the chemo suite telling the nurse who was sat next to me, it's like they start at your feet and they work all the way up and you really don't want them to happen. And the 70 year old guy in the chair behind me just started burst out (laughs) laughing. (laughs) Um, I thought I'm never going to sleep again. I was night night sweats on the hour, every hour, the whole, the duvets off and on and the layering. And it, I think because if you have a medically induced menopause, it is instant. There's no three or four years of a gradual buildup. It's like bang. And then after chemotherapy and surgery had a break, then I started on tamoxifen and Zolodex. And I hated the Zolodex because it was like a little surge every month. But this was like, okay. I don't know whether my brain didn't work because of chemo or the menopause. I still can't do anagrams and cryptic crosswords. Um, layering. I tried acupuncture. I tried hypnotherapy. Nothing really helped. And no one knew how to help me. And I didn't realize there were all these drugs that could help. And I'm a breast surgeon and I had no idea what was available. It was only when Richard Simcock, an incredible oncologist, DM'd me on Twitter and said, Liz, did you know that you can try antidepressants and clonidine? Thank you, God. But the thing that really got me was how it impacted my sex life. I used to tell patients, you'll have a couple of hot flushes and a bit of a dry vagina, you'll be fine in six months. And I'm embarrassed to say that's all I knew. But when your vagina feels like it's lined with sandpaper and your libido goes and you don't get turned on when you watch Fleabag anymore, that I really missed. I couldn't flirt. I'd lost my hair. I'd lost my breast. It was just like, I feel like a shriveled up 80 year old. 
and no one was talking about it. And I had never talked about it with patients. And then when my cancer came back, it turns out I wasn't fully menopausal. So I had my ovaries out because I had to go onto an aromatase inhibitor. And I'm like, I have no sex hormones. And it was really hard explaining it to my partner, Dermot. I still love you, but nothing works anymore. And it's why I've gone down this crusade of talking about lubricants and dilators and how to help women regain some form of penetrative sex life if that's what they want. But I, it is devastating and it is instant. And the thing I hate is that when HRT is being pushed as a panacea to cure everything, rightly or wrongly, you've got women like me who can't take it to think, well, what about us? We're being ostracized. It's so, it's really hard, really hard. So yes, this narrative of of the menopause. I think we're all pleased that it's it's out there and it's on the table and it's it's now mm. talking with um, Marika Big in in one of the earlier podcasts about sexy science. You know, things come in fashion yeah. and everyone's talking about it and everyone wants to research on it. And menopause, I would say, is sexy science at the moment. Everyone wants to work on it. Yes. It's like a wave of celebrities have suddenly reached their 50s and suddenly they're all talking about it because it's happening to them. Which in some ways is great that it's on the table. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about some of the myths. So there are lots of myths and I know you've you've been on social media about lots of them. So bring up HRT again. There's some that are saying it's okay if you've had any form of cancer to take HRT um, how do you feel about that? This this is all based on a book written by one American oncologist, one American oncologist against the world called Estrogen Matters, where he says estrogen is safe because we used to treat breast cancer with it in the 50s. And I've gone and looked at all the studies that he quotes to say HRT is safe after breast cancer. Most of them were done in the 60s and the 70s. We didn't have half, well, we didn't know it was affected by estrogen. We didn't routinely test estrogen receptors. They are it's shoddy, shoddy, shoddy science. There are some trials that show it can increase the risk of recurrence. But for me, if your cancer is ER positive, that means that estrogen makes the cells grow and divide. Now, once you've had surgery, we hope that there aren't any cancer cells left, but we assume there are cells just asleep floating in your blood that can wake up 5, 10, 20 years later. And if you are giving yourself and all the treatment to stop it coming back are drugs that stop you making estrogen. And when someone says have HRT, estrogen's actually fine. In my head, you are increasing the risk of waking up those cells and feeding them and making them grow and increasing the risk of a recurrence that cannot be cured that will lead to an early death. And what we're not hearing, which we should be doing, is educating GPs and anyone looking after cancer patients all the alternatives to help with menopausal symptoms. It is a last resort in every single international guideline because it just makes sense. And people who haven't lived with breast cancer are kind of saying, yes, it's fine, you should do this. And it really, it scares me because we don't know what's going to happen to these women with cancer who are taking HRT in the future. And are they actually being told it could increase your breast cancer coming back? And if it does, it will kill you. And are we helping women live with that decision, that potential guilt they may feel? What do you think? Yeah, no, it, it's what what annoys me is that we are all having to waste a lot of energy and time. As you say, looking at original papers from the 60s and 70s, I did the same when I wrote my book and all it's it mm. was rubbish science back then and yeah. we really need to park all of that, but I I had to read them too and spend energy to debunk myths. And we've yeah, got to, Exactly. You know, and it's frustrating because you and I want to educate the public about their health. Yeah. So wasting that time is very frustrating when we could be educating them much more about what we really do know. Yeah. We don't know everything. As you said, there some studies just haven't been done yet, but we've got to go with what we no. do have. And we don't want people making their life more of a, an issue, doing something that, that may harm them and may even kill them. So, yes, it's frustrating. <laughs> Exactly. And I think HRT is a great drug for women who want to take it. But for me, it's about informed consent. If a woman who's had cancer is not told this could increase the risk of it coming back and you will die if it comes back earlier than you should, they're not being told that. It's not true informed consent and women are being 
misinformed. And to me, that is really dangerous medicine. And I'm not convinced that is happening in clinics across the country. Yeah. So you and I have both become part of a new group or collective called Menno Clarity. And we are we have. We, we're out there to debunk the myths and to make sure that women know what we do know and what we don't know. So um, anyone can check out Menno Clarity and yeah. you'll find the website and various bits of work that people are doing. Um, so we'll let's let's stop talking about the menopause. Let's move on to yes. your jar of joy, which I, oh, I think yes. is wonderful. And, and you went on to do a TED talk um, about your jar I of did. joy. So I am, um, I, I did, I got asked to do a TED talk in Stuttgart. Um, they wanted some women to speak and I had to work out what a German audience would want to hear. And that's when I learned how to talk properly because at every conference you go to, people just roll out the same talk that they give to every audience, just reading off bullet points. And TED is all about why do the audience care? And I had to work out why a load of German strangers would want to listen to me talking. Which And that's how I write every talk. I think, what does the audience need to know? I change for every single person. I think it's so important. Um, but my jar of joy came back from the late Kate Granger, who mentioned something like this. And when my cancer had come back, when I found out it had grown during chemo, I was in a very, very black hole. And I'd read about gratitude journals and finding three things every day you're thankful for. It's too much hard work. I can't be asked to do it. Um, but I thought, there are always little things that happen. And what if I was to put them in a jar and I'd see them build up? Um, and I thought, right, I'm just going to do this. It doesn't have to be every day. It's just when something happens. And my husband did the first one, bloody man. Um, he put on a pair of trousers he hadn't worn in, 20, in 10 years. And he, I'm exaggerating, 10 months. And he found a fiver in the back pocket. He thought, that's going in. And then he let our puppy sit on the sofa. Like, yes, that's mine. And often it's just things like going to the cinema or seeing the birds on the feeder and just seeing it fill up. It reminds me that there is always good stuff happening. Even in your worst moments, there is something that can make you smile that you can be grateful for. And it it just helps keep you going. I, I love it. I'm doing a lot about happiness and well-being. And that's what I want to write a, a book about uh, next. And I think it's just so important for people to think about every day. There are little things that make us happy and we need to think about it. So Jar of Joy, highly recommended Liz's Jar of Joy. Yeah. <laughs> And I've had people do them in schools where the kids come in and say what happened at the weekend. And actually in doctor's offices, you know, I, I didn't have to wait half an hour to find a parking space. That's going in. And just just seeing this anonymous bowl of happiness, just it, it's a really nice thing. So what's made you smile this yeah, week? I'm going to ask get my you teenage. now. What would, I, what would you put in my jar of joy? Oh. Um, well, well, I I had um, a... I had a wonderful day yesterday with teaching about all the new technology that's coming out there. But then last night we had a wonderful reproduction salon, which is run by my dear friend, Lucy Vanderbilt Bill. And I don't know how she gets funding for these amazing uh, parties. which <laughs> so, so we had a wonderful evening, the whole evening, everything about the evening. I could have filled a jar of joy with yesterday evening. Aww. So yeah, thank that's you. going in. <laughs> that's going in. That's going in. Um, what about you this week? Have you had a good week? I was in Dublin talking to student doctors at the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, and I managed to swim twice at the forty foot and just oh. the glistening sea, the sun, seven o'clock in the morning. It's incredible. Swimming is swimming an cold though. It, it's an easy but, way yeah. to fill your jar of joy with swimming. I'm doing three this week: a new lake and two beaches. So um, they're going in the jar of joy. Ooh. <laughs> Um, so uh, let's talk about the complete guide to breast cancer that you wrote with Trish, both of you doctors who, as you said, had breast cancer. And and I, I found it so essential. I think for anyone with breast cancer, wow, what, what a resource. But I think also for people who we all know someone who's had breast cancer. So I think it's a, it's a really good book for anyone to read if you're supporting someone through breast cancer. And, um, I think it's really empowering. Yeah. Um, you, you. Let's go through some of the nitty gritty of, of the book. So you talk about the three ways we can detect breast cancer. Can can you explain those? Yeah, sure. So most people will find breast cancer when they notice a change in their breasts. And hands up, I never checked my breasts because it was never going to happen to me. I'll be honest. 
Um, and I've got a video showing you how to do it properly by looking in the mirror, by feeling your breasts properly, by checking your armpits. And most people will notice a change that will make them go to the GP. The second way it can be detected is through your screening mammograms. And I know there's a whole lot of controversy in the minute. Should they start at 40? Should they start at 50? There are people who think they're dangerous and we shouldn't have them. I think it's really important to pick up breast cancers at an early stage so women can avoid mastectomies, they can avoid chemotherapy, they have a better chance of living for longer. But it is a personal decision. But mammograms can pick up cancers at a small stage. And then very rarely we get people who come in, they've either broken their arm or they've hurt their hip or they've got other symptoms and the scan shows actually it's breast cancer that has spread. Wow. Um I have a little breast cancer story. Well, it's not a breast cancer, but it's a visit to a breast cancer clinic story. Um, mm -hmm. I I came out in a very stressful time of my life about 10 years ago when I split with my children's father. I came out with lots of cysts on my breast. And so I had lots of biopsies and investigations. And on one day in the clinic, I was with my kids and um, they just they just told me that there was it was clear. Um, but then I got a phone call from the vet that one of my cats had been run over. Um, oh. I know it was terrible. It was, that was one of the worst days ever. Um and so I'm sitting there crying my eyes out with my kids. And the doctors kept coming up to me. They said, we've just told you it's okay. Why are you crying? <laughs> I, had to, I had to explain why it was terrible. And then, and then my poor kids, we had, I, I wanted to teach them about life and death. And we'd been at the breast cancer clinic all day. And then we had to go to the vet to see our dead cat. It was just, oh, but I wanted Joyce. to say goodbye. That was, that was a horrible day. That was a terrible day. That's we, not a good day. That's not going in the job. Well, anyway, well. So if, let's move on, <laughs> um, if breast cancer is sus suspected, then obviously a diagnosis is needed. So a visit to the breast cancer yeah. clinic. And as you said, we are very good. The, the, the turnaround time, I mean, the, I've been a few times, I've got very odd breasts and weird nipples and things. So I've been quite a lot. And they are amazing. They're very quick and they're very supportive. And, it, you know, it's not this long NHS waiting list. So tell us about how we get a definite diagnosis. So if you have a change in your breast, most GPs will now refer everybody to the breast clinic. The fear of missing it out. Um, it is very, very uncommon in young women, but because young women are talking about it on Instagram, it does seem like every young woman has breast cancer, but it's still rare. One in 2000 women in their twenties get breast cancer. But if you notice a change, your GP will send you up to the breast clinic. And there are two clinics you can go to. One is a I'm fairly certain this isn't cancer. Can you just check? Which should be a six to eight week wait. But if they think it might be cancer, it's a two week wait. And breast, breast surgeons don't really have waiting lists for clinics because people suddenly have a breast lump. They don't have something that's been going on for months and months and months. So you are seen very, very quickly. And what used to happen is you'd see the doctor, then you'd go back and be called for a scan at another time. And then you'd be come back. Now we do it all in one go. So you're going to spend all morning or all afternoon in a breast clinic. You'll be seen by a doctor or nurse who will examine you. And then if you need to have an ultrasound or a mammogram, that will all happen at the same time. And if there is something there they want to take a biopsy of, they will do that at the same time. And then you normally get the results a week later. So it can be really, really quick and too quick for some people. And I always tell people to take someone with you if you go back to get results, even if it's good news, because it's horrible sat in that waiting room, imagining the worst, seeing people come and go. And I didn't get how bad it could be to be in a waiting room until I was a patient in a waiting room waiting to be called. And you're trying to look at the, the, the eyes of the nurses looking at you. Do they feel sad for me or do they feel happy? It's a really weird place to be. But 99% of the time, your GP will send you up to the clinic and you'll get it checked out and you'll have an answer there or then. And 90% of the people I see in clinic did not have breast cancer. Often it's just lumps and bumps or cysts or just general lumpiness. I'm feeling a bit emotional at the moment. Um, I I did go to quite a few of my clinics on my own and I, I can remember a lot of crying. Um, with, yeah. Yeah, with good news or bad news, just it is very, very emotional. So it's really good advice. Do not go on your own. If um, you can, because... Your, my mind, I first found a cyst. My husband had gone sailing around the Northwest Passage at the top of um, the Arctic. We just got engaged and I felt a lump. Turned out to be a cyst, but I thought I'll be dead in a year. I'll lose my hair. He won't want to marry me. What's the point? Howling on the sofa and sat in that room by yourself, imagining the worst with a phone, looking at metastatic cancer blogs. We all do it. It's really, really hard. So if you can yeah. take someone with you um, or yeah. knitting to distract you, something to help. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't just be on your phone for disaster. Now, we are both very keen exercisers and you've talked 
in both your books about the importance of exercise, exercising. And you completed some amazing, yeah. amazing challenges when you were in between treatment. So please tell us more about exercise and, and the challenges that you did. So I, it's funny, I'm the girl that did no sport at school. I hated it. My maiden name is Ball, but I can't hit throw or catch one to save my life. But I was a cycling widow. And I thought if I don't get a bike, I will never see my husband. And after a couple of years, I got into triathlons because I used to do swimming at school. And I'd just done my first triathlon when I was diagnosed. And back in 2015, no one told me to exercise. But I, I wanted to. It's a thing that I really enjoyed. And I found women on Twitter with metastatic cancer who were cycling and rowing and kayaking and going to the gym. And I thought, right, if they can do it, I can. So I went to the gym in my good weeks and I did a sprint pool-based triathlon halfway through chemo. Boulder Sakut took me forever, but that sense of achievement, I was just Liz when I did that. I wasn't a cancer patient. And I carried on slowly exercising through chemo and radiotherapy. And three months after finishing radiotherapy, I did a crazy race um, ride in the Dolomites, which I'm doing in a couple of weeks where we cycle up the mountains. It's just glorious. My husband dragged me around. And then a year after treatment, I did a half Ironman triathlon. Again, just finished, just got onto the cutoff time. I had to ignore all my previous Strava times. But again, it's I'm just Liz when I'm exercising. And then in lockdown, I realized there's so much evidence now to say that Sorry, resistance training is really important. I never went to the gym, but I told people they should. So I started training using dumbbells and resistance bands and showed you can transform your body at any age, but it is hard work. Yeah, it's so, it's so important. And and um, we talked, there were both wild swimmers as well. And being out in nature is so mm. good for our well-being as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's I, I love being outside, walking the dog, listening to the birds. And the, I'm very lucky in stuff that we've got clean rivers. There is something about with a group of women and men in a river. You've got swans going past. You've got the wagtails overhead, the sun shining. It's just it's just you can't think about anything else but just being happy, being smart. I love it. It's really freeing. And it, How it's did quite you get in- into it, Joyce. Oh, well, well, um, mine. My, um, my second guest on my podcast ever was Jessica Hepburn and Jessica and I've known each other for many, many years. And I've always been a swimmer. I've always swam. I'm not very good. I'm not very good at sports either. Um, but I've always done lots of sports and lots of fitness. And I was always the one whenever we were near water, I've always wanted to live near water. And whenever we were, I was always jumping in and always swimming. my whole life. Did lots of river swimming when, when we were at uni and things. And then Jessica um, her story is she had um, years of infertility and wasn't successful. Um, so to overcome that, she wanted to push her herself mentally and physically to do some challenges. And she's climbed Everest, and, but she swam the channel and she wrote a beautiful wow. book, 21 Miles, about her training. Oh, I've read it. Oh, is yeah. that her? Yeah. Oh, she's, it's an amazing book. Well, she's a, she's a very, very good friend. And we we were out one day having lunch. <clears throat> and um, I went home that night. It was in December, a December, a few years ago, um, before COVID. And I went back home and said, I need to go swimming and I need to do it now. So I went to a lake in December, a couple of days after seeing Jessica. Um, and it was four degrees and it was stupid. But I've never, I've never turned back. Now I go at least once a week. And I say when COVID hit, I say it got me through COVID. Uh, yeah. For sure. I, I live on my own with three teenage boys. Um, I think I would have gone more insane uh, if I hadn't have had that time. As you said, with friends, the, the swimming community is amazing. Um, and we had a podcast also with Heather Massey, who's the woman who I read, her and Mike Tipton. I read all of their stuff mm. and listened to all their podcasts and webinars before I took the plunge. I had read them before I'd actually seen Jessica. And then that day... Yeah. With it was the cherry on the cake. Um, so yeah, I've had Heather on um, giving some really good advice, and I really would encourage any person to, you know, just have a go. Now's a great time. Yeah. Weather's warm. Uh, get having that sun on your face. A great place. I I I want to do it to find people to talk to in the day because I'm bored and lonely. And I found the Blue Tits group on Facebook, and there's often a Blue Tits group in every town and city all over the UK and they're so welcoming and that's a great place to find people to tell you what to do and where to go and make sure you do it safely but it's just amazing plus the tea and cake afterwards is yeah. fun 
the half an hour gossiping as we warm up on the side of the river yeah you have to do that because you mustn't just go and get in your car so we have to gossip no we have to gossip and I'm, I'm actually yeah, and I'm actually admin for the Cambridge and Peterborough Blue Tits group, so I'm very involved with those. <laughs> it's great fun. No, they're great. <laughs> they're great. Um, let's talk about your podcast, Don't Ignore the Elephant in the Room. I've listened to a few. They're really great, and you are talking about, as you say, stuff that no one else will. Tell us a little bit more about it. I just felt... It was another way of reaching another audience to share the stuff that I wanted to get out in the open. The things that no one talked to me about, like sex after cancer or talking about death and dying. And I just really enjoy chatting to people and I'm nosy. And it's been great to know that even if just one or two people email to say, thank you, I listened to this and it's really, really helped. As a doctor, when I had to retire, I lost my sense of purpose and writing and talking as a way of helping people. And I love the fact that you can get these topics out in the open. Um, we shouldn't be embarrassed about talking about anything. And it's it's been a great, it's hard work. I had no idea how, how hard work launching a podcast would be and finding the guests and scripting, but I love that research. It takes me back to my PhD days. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a great way of just talking about things no one else does really. Uh, no, I totally agree. And for I'm not me, selling it's it very well, am I? should be, no. No, <laughs> no you are. Uh, for me, it makes me read their books as well. <laughs> yes, it's, it's again, you know, as, as an author, you end, you time to go in the round of podcast guests saying, can you read my book? But actually, there's so much more underneath it. Why do people write them? What's inspired them to do this? And for me, it's all, all, also about trying to get the little people on. I don't want to be big name celebrities. I just want to get real people um, talking as well to share their stories and get their voices heard. Yeah, I'm, I'm picking interesting people, people who I think are, I've got an interesting story to tell. That's that's the number one for me. <laughs> yeah. So you you do a lot on social media, as I do as well, and um, it's it's not easy. And being a, a clinician no. or a scientist, you know, in this area, there's very, there's really quite few of us that do it, and I'm always trying to encourage people. But I think some of my colleagues think I'm a bit crazy to do it. Um, highs and lows. What do you think about highs and lows and the motivation you've had to, to keep going on oh. social media? I started, tweeting was mainly triathlons and baking. And then I got cancer and I decided to tell Twitter I had cancer because I couldn't keep it a secret for nine months. And I was going to be recognized in the hospital because I was losing my hair. And the blog took off and then I got more followers than my husband and he became the husband of the more famous wife and it kind of grew a life of its own. And part of me hates it. I would love to be able to put my phone away and never do any of it again. But I'm an author. It's a brand. You have to do this. And I think that the highs are you say something, you do a video, you write a comment and you get someone saying, thank you. This has meant the world. I understand it. it. It's a bit of ego stroking as well, but someone say, thank you. You've helped someone. That that to me is everything. Plus the connections you make. I've made amazing friends and made amazing connections just by asking people, could you do this? Could you do that? I love that everybody generally is nice and friendly and it's a great thing to do. And I think the public are now looking on Instagram and YouTube for health information. It's I think it's really important that you need to be out there and helping drive the common sense narrative. Because I, th I think, as you said, with the menopause thing, it's very hard to get traction when we are boring common sense. You know, exercise, eat well, sleep better. We're not selling sexy supplements because they don't work. But it's the more voices that come through, the more you hope people will listen to us. The lows are the time it can take away from my family and friends, the hours you spend scripting and podcasts and planning and editing. And, and then you get hooked into reading messages at 10, 11 o'clock at night when I should be talking to my husband or doing something else. It can be all consuming. And I haven't had a lot of nasty messages. I did have death threats a few years ago from a well-known influencer who was saying that bras cause breast cancer and mammograms are dangerous. And she sent all her trolls after me. And that's hard. And you learn to develop a thick skin. And I've learned not to reply to negative comments. Because especially on Twitter, because it's in the public forum, anyone can read it. And I think you kind of go through that learning curve of, oh, my God, I shouldn't have said that. They're not strangers. I don't owe them anything. And it's kind of learning that it, it's a fake world and how to balance that. But the highs, the stuff I've got from it has been far more than the lows. What have been your highs, Joyce? Why do you keep doing it? Um, 
I'd like to listen to what people say. So sometimes I will be challenging. At the moment, I've got a tweet out about words we should be using to teach teenagers about reproductive health. So I've got some people suggesting that we shouldn't yeah. mention trans and non-binary at all. And I've got the same, literally the next day, same week, I had someone say um, that my resource that I'd written was not inclusive because it said female and male, and it's a shape, say people with wombs and people with a penis. Um, so I decided, so that's, this is a great example. I just put it out there. I said, right, I've had these two comments in one day. What do you think? Um, what's, yeah, I think one of the lows for me is that sometimes people misinterpret, even though I try to be really clear, they don't read things properly. So they, no. they, they put words in my mouth and they assume that I'm, I've got one view or another view when I don't. So that yeah. I find annoying, but I, and when you get those sorts of posts, you could t- just take them down, but I do want to hear them. So for me, the highs are, it's a, it's a really good platform to educate the public and we normally can get that message across. And as you say, having, having a positive response from someone. So at the, at the event I was at yesterday, um, these are people in rep- work in reproduction, but I would say... I had at least mm-hmm. 10 people come up to me and say, I love what you do. So um, oh. that makes, yeah, that's great. So it makes, that makes the, um, they, I've actually almost all of them said, I follow everything you write. I really love what you do. And I'm like, whew. <laughs> so then. Because this- I, I find it really strange. You, you put stuff out there, but you don't really know how many people are seeing it or reading it or watching it. So when someone does say thank you, it's like, oh. Yeah, same with the podcast. Actually, it makes it it makes it worth it. But we've we've done a study on we've done we've done the first one on Twitter, and we looked at um, posts with different hashtags to do with fertility, and we looked at um, how many followers people had, and then the you can look at some of the statistics about um, what people you know, how many people viewed a video or how many impressions a post had. And it's really, mm. really, in- really interesting. It's made me look at it a little bit more in a bit more detail about, okay, when I said that, okay, only 400 people looked at it. But then you said, I mean, I've looked at some of yours, you know, you could say something and then 10,000 people. <laughs> have, have I know. It's like, and then I put up a video about baby hedgehogs and it gets 3000 views in a minute. It's bonkers. But I thought I should probably touch on my own infertility through breast cancer. Yes. Because I I got married late. I was 36. And I'd before I met my husband, I'd been single for 10 years. And I kind of assumed I was the crazy cat lady. I had two cats. I was a single surgeon. And my husband had a daughter from his first marriage who was 10 years younger than me. And we weren't sure whether we should have kids. My first year of married life was spent working in the Marsden. And I spent the weekends living with his in-laws, the weeks. And then I'd come back for two days and go back. So it wasn't great. And we still hadn't decided. And then I was suddenly being told I needed chemotherapy. And the fertility discussion was literally 30 minutes, 30 seconds as one of the side effects. So you'll lose your hair. Do you have children? No. Do you want them? We've not decided. Well, it's a big cancer. We don't want to take the risk of egg preservation. So are you happy to go on with chemo? And it was, and we were both there with a colleague that we knew that we worked with. It's like, okay, fine, move on to constipation. And it was suddenly having to make a decision and accept I would never have children in a public room. And my own surgeon hadn't prepared me for it. And I don't blame her for that. There was so much going on. She was my boss telling me I got cancer. And I probably never told women with young cancer to think about whether they wanted children before they saw the oncologist. And it was only at that moment that I realized I actually did really want children. Now I knew I couldn't have them. And I think that grief that a lot of cancer patients feel for the things they've lost is really hard. And, and God, when book day on Facebook and you're like, I don't have kids to make costumes for and I don't have kids to bake. And yes, I can be, be, great, be a great granny and auntie. I actually quite like having a lion. That feeling that cancer took them from me is something I still struggle with. Infertility is something that, it never leaves people. And even for me that, you know, I have got kids from it. Um, I still, it's never left me. Um, 
whether whether you've been through treatment or, or mm. not it's it's a it's a really tricky one as you say those things that you you didn't have it's it's a it's a very complicated feeling um and uh yeah thank thank you for sharing that it's really really important to think about all these things that you that we have to all these hurdles we have with life and it's it's not plain sailing for yeah. for, for many of us at that time um let's move on to some of the health myths that uh you and I have been trying to debunk. So I, we've, we've talked, <laughs> there, I mean, there are many, um, and we've talked about a few already. Are there any others that you'd like to mention? I think one doing the rounds at the minute is that underwired bras cause breast cancer, which just, it's bonkers. It comes back from a book written in the 60s by two, um, I think, anthropologists who looked at a load of women and thought the women who wore bras were more likely to get breast cancer, therefore underwire bras cause breast cancer. And that's like saying people who smoke drink coffee and people who smoke get lung cancer, therefore coffee causes lung cancer. And the reasoning behind it is that the underwire bra compresses the lymph drainage of the breast, therefore toxins build up, that whole pseudoscience bullshit word toxins. But it's bollocks because the underwire sits beneath your bra and the lymph fluid of the breast drains upwards towards the impart, in towards your armpit, and toxins don't live in the lymph system, and if there were, they don't cause cancer. But you get some person to say it and say, no, bras are dangerous. It's like, no, can we just, can we just back down a minute, please? <laughs> yeah. So I must say I get that. so many people asking me to debunk things. The termic, <laughs> termic enemas and mercury fillings and a deodorant's safe. And mammograms cause breast cancer. And yeah, yeah, it's this. And it's, again, the voice of common sense and reason isn't boring and it's not sexy and it's not exciting. How do you make it stick? What are your yeah. favorite myths, Joyce? It, oh, there are there, there just too many, too, too, too many. Um, lot, lots around fertility and yeah, the list goes on and on. But I did want to say about bras, I must say, I've, I have posted about this before. I do hate wearing a bra. <laughs> um, I have got quite big breasts, so but I do, I do yeah. often go out in the car when I don't think I need to get out um, without a bra. I, and I, it is the thing that yeah. I take off the minute I come home, and only yeah. So I love lockdown. Lockdown was great. I, I can, I have got one on, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I often don't wear one. And I, even when I was younger, um, yeah, it's um, yeah. And I think I spend most of my time in breast clinic as a surgeon telling women their bras didn't fit them properly because they were actually causing the breast pain. And actually, I used to think I was a 34A and my bras always uncomfortable, take them off. And I got measured properly and it turned out I was a 30D. And that feeling of, oh my God, I'm a D, that's huge. But it's because your boobs go all the way around the back. Your breasts are much wider than you think. And the minute I had a wider cup and a narrow back, it felt like I wasn't wearing anything. But most of us get measured at 18 and that is my bra size. And your, your, your weight may go up by a whole dress size in your period. And then it comes back down again. We change weight. Bras are expensive. I don't want to throw my bras out because they cost a lot of money, especially if you have large breasts. And the reason they're uncomfortable is because they don't fit. And it's not just, this drives me mad. You can, you can be a 36C and M&S and then you get one from John Lewis, but they're different. The, the, the width between the middle and it's, it's really hard to get fitted and have one that fits you properly. Yeah. But, de- but you don't need to wear them. It won't do you any harm if you wear them or not, but they yeah. may head south the winter sooner than later. <laughs> Mine are south anyway. <laughs> they never used to be when I was younger, but they anyway. Anyway, it's fine. Pregnancy and yeah. Yeah. yeah we digress. Yeah. I'll blame my sons. But um, yeah, no, no, a good advice. Women should definitely wear a good fitting bra. And for sports, you know, I... I had a, I thought, oh, because sports bras cause breast cancer. Did, I, I've seen this. It's a TikTok video. I've got a video coming. There's a there's a woman on TikTok who's got like seven, eight million views. She wears sports bras all the while because she's slim with large breasts. And she went to a doctor with pain. And she says her doctor told her that sports bras compress the breast and stop lymph fluid draining and toxins build up. So you shouldn't wear them. And then she said, you should flick your breasts to get rid of the buildup of the lymph fluid. What? This is breast flicking is not a thing. Sports bras are fine. Finding one that fits you is really hard, but oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I really recommend, I, we had a great talk by um, someone that is doing research on sports bras and they showed a, a woman running with a good bra and a poor bra. Yeah. And um, 
that that was a life changer for me. I then decided to go and buy expensive um, sports bras and uh, just felt so much more comfortable doing star jumps yeah. and running and things like that. So, yeah. Because your breasts sport. move independently of each other in a figure of eight or up and down. <laughs> and if your breasts weigh a kilo each and they're not fully supported, it's going to hurt. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're not going to want to do sport. Yes, for sure. And um, what about the saying, why didn't anyone tell me this? So in the fertility field, the list of what people didn't know, which we're trying to change with school education, is very long. But what about in your field? What didn't people know and they wish they knew? I was going to go personally. I think, why didn't anyone tell me that surgery wasn't the be all and end all? Because as a surgeon, my my life was job, exam, on-call, job, exam, on-call. No hobbies, no friends, no social life. It was all about the work and the patients. And then when that all got taken away from me, I suddenly realized there is more to life than surgery and my job doesn't define me. And if it's suddenly taken away, what is left? But I think if it came to breast cancer, why didn't anyone tell me to actually listen to my patients or ask my patients what the treatment is like? And what help do they need? Because they want to, the hardest bit is of cancer patients when the doctor says goodbye, see you in five years, and you're left to struggle with the mental side effects, the physical side effects, the recurrence, the, all that all that stuff. And that wasn't part of my job. That was someone else. And I wish they'd said, listen to patients at conferences, listen to those stories and find out what it's like to live with the disease you are treating. That that's really powerful, and that's certainly what what I'm doing. After working in infertility for years, in the last six seven years, I've been listening to patients, listening to the public. We're just about to set up a public consultation group to write some information leaflets. They're they're the ones we need to be addressing. And the saying I I'm often they repeating are. is, we shouldn't sit in our ivory tower and decide what our patients or the public want. We should no. ask them. And I think that's why social media can help. But I, I say it's a bit like TripAdvisor. As a doctor, my decisions were based on the rarer times someone sent me flowers or the rare complaints. You don't hear from the majority of people who think you're doing a good job but can't be asked to write and tell you. And I think that's often the same with social media. People who are angry have a point to prove, shout the loudest, and it's hard to hear the voice of the people in the middle, and especially all different cultures and backgrounds I'm very aware most of my followers are probably white to the middle class. And how can you represent the whole community when they are not active on social media? And that's a real challenge when we want to make sure that everybody is treated the same. And I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, that's is. a real challenge. And we've definitely, we've, yeah, we've done some work. I You're doing some, some work, aren't you, trying to? Twitter. Yeah. yeah, but it, I did paid ads, yeah. but it, 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 it's, it's certainly yeah. difficult. So last few questions, very personal now. So, what motivates okay. you? I don't know. I've lost my mojo at the minute. No, it's helping people. At the end of the day, I just want to help people slash animals slash birds slash lost and lonely things. And that that gives me joy. It makes me feel whole. We haven't talked about hedgehogs. No, we haven't. So I, I found a baby hedgehog out in the garden about three or four years ago, and I knew they shouldn't be out in the day. And I couldn't find a hedgehog shelter. And I was finally third page of Google, find this tiny place near me, I'll take it in. And it was run by a couple in the 70s called Anne and Chris, who I talk about in my book. And they had over 100 hedgehogs in their lean to and their garage. And I thought, God, you're in your 70s and you are, they need cleaning out twice a day, every day. You do this for love. This is your job, your pensioners, what the earth are you doing? And I said, when, I, when my cancer came back and I retired, I thought, can I come and help? Because I'm free. And it is the highlight of my week. I clean out hedgehog poo and hedgehog pee, and I get to cuddle them and see their little babies. But it's that sense of giving something of myself, wanting absolutely nothing in return. And I have my hedgehog restaurant when I'm on holiday. My dad will come and top up the water and the food. And it's just, we need to look after protected species. And it's just my little way of giving something back. And check out Liz's social media. Don't give them milk and don't oh, no. give them mealworms. Oh. It's bad for them. But yes. <laughs> Good Sorry. advice. But yeah, there'll be cute videos of hedgehogs on my social feed. Yep. Social media, Liz's cute photos of her with her hedgehogs. And this will probably lead into the next question about what makes you happy and where is your happy place? So besides the hedgehogs. <laughs> oh. I'm happy when I'm with people I love. 
um, my dad and my husband and my dog, cuddling the dog because he always listens and he never talks back. My happy place is sitting watching birds on the feeder and hearing the bird song and knowing they're eating my nuts and I'm the best bird mother and seeing the ducklings in the garden. It's nature. It's being outside and just, it's when I can switch off the bees and the butterflies on the plants in the garden, all of that. So my cat earlier in the meeting before you has bought in a dead bird. Oh. So I'm a bit angry and I have to now, and ironically, sometimes now they're bringing in blue tits. You know, no. just, God, I love you, cat. I couldn't. But... I, I have to turn off any nature program when there's a fear of an animal dying. I can't. I can't watch it. I can't. I can't watch them. This new one, um, you know, the, about the British Isles. I watched the first one. I watched it was just it was murder. I just I couldn't watch it. I can't watch them. I know. I don't, I don't want mind to them see having it. sex, I can't. but not being murdered. Don't tell me the baby bird doesn't make it. I can't. I haven't watched Bambi or Dumbo. Yeah. Can't do any of that stuff. No. So after chatting to you, I've got to go and clear up the dead bird. So, yeah, that's not going in the oh. jar of joy. I know. So the very final question. No. Um, yes. Your advice to your younger self. Ooh. Respect yourself, stand up for yourself, and it's okay to say no. Wonderful, wonderful. On those wise words, Liz, it's been absolutely fabulous. Can't wait to meet you in a few weeks. And your memoir is out, is it July the... Or June? July the 6th, Under the Knife, available wherever you want to buy your books. Um, And let me know what you think. Brilliant, brilliant. And thank you so much for chatting, Joyce. And I haven't even talked about your book, which I loved, which is brilliant. So more of that later. (laughs) There's more of that on my podcast. So Liz, thank you very much and look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Joyce.